Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, whatever time you're listening to this. You're listening to Liberal Use of the Word, a podcast that's trying to fight the good fight against ignorance, one concept at a time. I'm your host, Catherine. Cat, if you know me from work. Catherine Mary, if you're my mom and you're uh, disappointed in me, then <laughs> we're going to do a little fireside chat before we get into the episode this week. Many of you have been giving me incredibly helpful and constructive feedback, and I'm really grateful for, for that. And one of the tests we're going to run is doing a bit of an intro before we get into the meat of the content this week. So this week, my partner in dismantling ignorance is none other than Daniel Perez, or let's see, Daniel Juiz Gigamboa Perez, if we want his full proper name. Danielle and I have known each other now for about six years. We first met as interns at our current employer, and that's a good reminder to just always note that the views expressed on this podcast are my views alone and do not represent any organizations that I'm affiliated with including the one and only IHI. So Danielle and I met at IHI. We started working together six years ago when the portfolio of work in Latin America was just a baby seedling. And now I'd like to say it's a pretty healthy adult uh, oak tree well on its way to becoming a, a staple. Danielle and I have talked and could talk about many, many topics as is the case with most of the people that are on the pod. One topic that I thought he and I were uniquely positioned to have a really interesting conversation around was multiculturalism. Both of us have experiences in that in different ways, and I won't give too much away since we're going to talk about it with Danielle, but mine is that I come from a mixed background, my mom's side and my dad's side. We've got Lebanon, Ireland, France represented. And I have enough of the, and I've, and I have enough of the sort of physical traits and I have grown up being really enmeshed in the culture of um, the Lebanese and the Arab side of my family, I would say as much, if not more than the Irish and French side of my family, probably because that side of the family immigrated to the U.S. uh, more recently. So there's still a deep, there's still a sort of closer connection to it. And so it's cl- it's close enough that I still get the what are you question and people still sort of make that circular hand motion to my face and will say, but where are you really from <laughs> or where's your family from? And that's, I think, a classic experience for people that come from different ethnic and cultural and racial backgrounds. And Danielle has his own, which again, we're going to dive into, but That's sort of the premise for the episode this week. Danielle has lived in many different countries and has a really interesting growing up story that I'll let him tell. But so that's that's sort of the rationale for why I thought he would be a really good candidate for, for this week's episode. And I think the more that our culture globalizes and the more that we have people from a variety of backgrounds interacting with other people from a variety of backgrounds, the more and more important this will be in having that cultural agility and being able to move between different groups of people in different communities will just continue to become more and more valuable uh, on a personal and honestly professional basis. I think Danielle and I have both 
a lot of personal experience in that I have felt very lucky and blessed to be able to feel sort of equally comfortable in Latin America as I do in the U.S. and in a lot of ways as I do in, in the Middle East and a number of other regions. So that's that's the plan for this week. I'm going to get Danielle connected now and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. Welcome to the pod, Danielle. I've done a quick intro. First things first, very happy to have you on. So good to be here, Catherine. Uh, it's uh, a very exciting moment to be participating in your in your podcast, and uh, and especially given the topic we're going to be discussing tonight, it's a, a topic that's uh, very near and dear to, to my heart and my experience. So I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to be here. There's, I'm sure there is nothing else you would rather be doing with your Friday evening in quarantine than another Zoom call. So I'm very appreciative of that. Right. I mean, this is as exciting, I think, as, as a Friday night uh, can get these days. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm happy, happy to be here. I actually I have, it turns out I have no other plans right now. So this is actually perfect. Oh, shocking. Well, we're glad you could uh, squeeze us into your very busy <laughs> schedule now. Um, so you already know this because uh, you've been a, an avid and early supporter of the pod. But for those who don't know, we like to start off each week going over just a basic definition of the word that we're going to be talking about this week, which, as I said earlier, is going to be multiculturalism bit of a mouthful. Um, so dictionary.com continues to be our, uh, I wouldn't say preferred source, I would just say the easiest source of, <laughs> of our definitions. And I'm going to share the dictionary.com definition and then I'd love for you to reflect on it, put your own spin, whatever, whatever uh, sort of comes to mind as you listen to that definition. So the dictionary.com definition is the preservation of different cultures or cultural identities within a unified society as a state or nation. So it's, uh, it was something along the lines of, of the, the, preserva the preservation was in there, which was interesting, of different cultures or different identities within a unified society as something, something, something. I, I don't remember the last bit, but... Um, that was honestly like 99% of it. I'm pretty <laughs> impressed. Okay. Yeah, so I thought it was interesting that preservation was in there and also identities because that's, I think, a lot of what my reflections are about when it comes to multicultural, being multicultural. What does that mean? I think it has a lot to do with identity. I think... I think it's that's all oh, right. I think the last bit was around like states or nations or or sort of it. It seemed the definition seemed to constrain it to sort of geography, geographical units, which I think you know makes a lot of a lot of sense. And then I think culture is used geographically and also in 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 different ways in like organizational culture. So I think it's interesting that it's constrained to. To, to the geographical sense of the of the word um and then also a unified society sort of the power of 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 culture in unifying people around a sort of shared set of things values and and, and other things um 
so so it's it's an interesting definition. I do have my take. Um, oh, please, a prepared guest. <laughs> <laughs> I do have my take on the word, and and I guess should I should I speak to Catherine a little bit about my sort of experience and why this is. Yeah, you know, why not dive? I, I just so you know, plugged many times that you had a very interesting uh, story and personal experience with this. So I hope you deliver <laughs> to the expectations that I have now. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so I'll do a quick, just a quick, quick summary, and then we can dig deeper into pieces of it. But yeah, I, I was I was born in, in Lima, Peru, um, to... Brazilian parents and to a family, an extended family of people who identify as Brazilians and who, for the most part, live in Brazil and have lived for a long time in, in Brazil. And, and a few months, two months actually after my birth, my family moved away from Peru to Venezuela and then to Colombia and then to, back to Venezuela and then to Mexico to the United States, to Portugal, and then back to the United States. So that's, that's sort of the long story short of it. So I've had a, a lot of exposure to different cultures, and, that, and that's why uh, this, this topic is especially interesting to me. Um, so my definition of, of multiculturalism, I think, it's, I think it's useful to define culture in order to, to define multiculturalism, right? But before we do that, uh, multiculturalism, simply put, I think is sort of the exposure to at least three cultures, right? Or, or we can say the meaningful exposure to at least three cultures. I, I say three because I think if it's two, it's sort of, you could say it's like biculturalism. Yeah, so I think multi is usually used in language as sort of three or more. Yeah, so, so basically, uh, that's multiculturalism. But culture um, is very is a very nuanced word, and and uh, it's typically defined as a combination of values, uh, arts, language, even tools, and sort of like techniques. Certainly, history, uh, traditions, rituals. Right? There's so much that that defines uh, a, a culture that, that could comprise what, what, what the word uh, means. Uh, often it's, it, it's, a, it's a human thing, right? I, I think it's very tied to our ability to, to have the language and the complexity of language that we've, we have developed. And you don't see other animals sort of, I think as far as we know, with, with culture, right? They're sort of creating uh, cultures in, in the way we know them. So it's a very human thing there's sort of many drivers of, of what of a culture, be it a geographical culture or uh, of any given particular group of human beings that's sort of large enough to, to, to be considered culture. But I, I like, but here's the, the hot take. Uh, I like to think of, of different cultures as different super books in the library of human consciousness. So, <laughs> so books that these book, these super books in this library, in this sort of abstract library, they never really get published, uh, and they live in something resembling a, a Google Doc, right? Each of these books is sort of in this Google Doc. Most people have read-only access to this Google Doc, 
plug to Google, by the way. This uh, metaphor is spot on. <laughs> also, I'd like to know Google Doc is not sponsoring this podcast, but they sure as hell could if they wanted to. A good analogy. Yeah, Google. Uh, listen, listen to this. Uh, so, so yeah, so most people only have read-only access to these, these docs. But uh, some people occasionally sort of garner enough power and influence to temporarily gain editing privileges to that Google Doc. Um, and then all of these super books that are sort of these cult, each, each super book represents a culture. They all live in this super Google Drive, right? So, so anyone, can, uh, anyone can gain read-only access to any book within the Google Drive, but for a price of either time or, or and or money. Uh, therefore, it's sort of expensive to become multicultural. It sort of requires investment. It's it's um, it's taxing for an individual to sort of navigate from book to book within the drive. Um, and then you sort of have this algorithm that takes everything in the Google Drive and produces this mega book, which represents our global culture. If we were to, from the perspective of, let's say, a potential uh, uh, other life on another planet they that would be sort of the super book uh that they would taking in the uh intergalactic <laughs> approach <laughs> you know me i you know it's i like to, to, to think uh in a very broad way um and so and so okay so that's sort of the the analogy of of culture in a very sort of abstract way but ultimately these books are filled with stories about what matters in life right what are each book sort of creates stories about what are positive ways to experience life and, and what are negative ways to experience life. Um, and once you sort of gain access to a, a super book, um, you could, you, in order to read the full book you, 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 and to read it and pay attention to all the details, you need time. Uh, you know, you, you could just skim the book and then, and then once you've skimmed, move on back to your favorite book or sort of your home culture. Um, and even when we take time to read a book, we might only focus on things that are relatable uh, because we sort of are familiar with them and from the other book that we really liked. Uh, and so we might not really grasp the full extent of, of, of what it's trying to say. Um, and... And the real challenge is when a story in a different book about a particular something we care about is told differently in that book, uh, differently to what sort of the way our book tells it. Um, and this is just a book that we rented from the library for a few days, right? And we think, ah, that's funny. The story is a bit wrong. Uh, so I think that in order to be multicultural, we, we have to invest, you know, time, energy, and money to thoroughly read at least three of these super books. And then where do you draw that line of like, what is thorough enough for you to be considered uh, multicultural? And then the question is, do you have to physically sort of experience or can you just read a lot about We're now actually just reading like online uh, not super books, just regular books about that culture. Is that enough to, to 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 become multicultural? I think so. I think it just takes more time, and it's much quicker and easier to to go there and be there and actually and be intentional about engaging with that other culture. Because uh, I I think in my experience, like I, I when I was very young, 
And I lived, for example, for a stint six months in Venezuela. Very short amount of time. I was very young. I wasn't paying attention to those details. I probably didn't pick up too much of what that culture has to offer, right? So, so that's my, my definition of multiculturalism is sort of is how much time you spend and money spent you spend sort of reading these different books and being curious about these different books. And if, and, and if you've done that with at least three, then you're multicultural. Wow, that was unsurprisingly an incredibly thoughtful and thorough and well thought out metaphor. Um, if you are fortunate enough to know Danielle in a professional and personal capacity, that will also come as no surprise to you. But for those of you who are not as fortunate, I hope you appreciated that. That was like a perfect snapshot <laughs> into what it's like to to work and know Danielle. Um, and that's why I knew you would be such a great guest for this like very, uh, you know, I there are a few concepts that we talk about that I think there are sort of a quote unquote right and wrong answer to, but multiculturalism is so undefined and ever-changing and fluid and somewhat dictated by groups and somewhat dictated by your own personal experience that it's one of those classic, you know, you can talk about it forever um, and you'll never really definitively know if you got it right or not. So you are the perfect guest for this kind of topic. Um, and I think I love that. I love that metaphor for a lot of reasons. Um, one of the things that really stands out to me is the certainly the point around how different stories tell, talk about the same thing. And I think at the macro level, that speaks to something that I perceive as being unique to people who have a multicultural background or have had experiences in multiple cultures. And I'd love to hear if you agree. And if so, if you have an example, which is I feel like in a way we can serve as the quote unquote more objective perspective to things because we're used to seeing one concept or thing from multiple angles. And just by having seen that from multiple angles, you recognize that there's never really like a definitive right or wrong answer to it. And just by acknowledging that that's true about most, if not everything in life, I feel like that positions us uh, really well to serve as in, you know, personal and professional settings as the bridge between things in the sense that you can draw on multiple experiences to be able to sort of speak to people in quote unquote their own language. And in that you can keep things at a little bit more of an emotional distance than people who live and breathe that culture all the time. Agree, mm -hmm. disagree. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. And, and I think, the one of the important things to keep in mind when we're presented with sort of a, a different perspective on on a same thing that we care about it's important to keep in mind that you know it's all storytelling ultimately it's all story but it's not just like random storytelling people are not just telling stories you know that uh, because it's usually because they actually think it's useful uh this story is useful in this context uh, be it psychologically useful, like socially useful, like physically useful, but there's there's stories, right? And and I think um, you know different contexts call for different 
stories to 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 create usefulness, right? So it's not in 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 one context someone might might let's I mean we we can try to think of some specific examples to 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 sort of ground this in uh, in in a more in a more specific you know understanding of of I guess what we're trying to say because it, it can get very abstract. To your point, you know, this topic is very. I can go in many directions. I, I'm going to start with the comparison just between uh, the Western Hemisphere and the Eastern Hemisphere. Because it's interesting because those are like, there's like macro cultures uh, in, in between hemispheres. And there's a, a really interesting book that actually my, my mom, uh, a globetrotter herself, the OG, uh, Globetrotter, alongside my father, recommended this book, and it's it's called the Geography of Thought, and uh, it's very interesting. It's it basically tries to understand the difference between sort of Western philosophy and like Western macroculture uh, relative to Eastern philosophy, Eastern macroculture, and in the West, sort of there's a value to there's a, there seems to be an uh, and again, and it's important to say here that these are sort of generalizations and, uh, and you know, life is very diverse, but, you know, there is some generalization that can be done um, in, uh, for, for groups. And, uh, and so in, in the West, people tend to, to sort of value speed and um, sort of short-term returns and, and results and immediate results and sort of um, when you think about the story of, of about what it means to like achieve and to make progress and in the west it's usually like we get we want to get quick results we want to like get stuff done we want to uh and we want to see these results need to be tangible measurable quantifiable in the east you get and 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 again i'm not an expert on the east Uh, i have had a lot of experience traveling in the western hemisphere and living in different countries in the west but i'm i'm uh, i haven't been fortunate enough to actually get a lot of exposure I, I i don't think there are any cultures in the eastern hemisphere that i would say i would would uh live with in my multicultural uh experience but they tend to in the east be more willing to, to sort of see long-term uh returns and, and have more of a long-term approach to 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 how they think about progress and it doesn't need to always be completely measurable and quantifiable there's a little bit more uh more of a willingness to 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 you know not have to measure everything and and still feel like you're making progress uh that's one got the other example just with the west versus east hemisphere is i think there's in the west this value of independence and freedom and and sort of the free will is paramount. Uh, in the East, they, in, the, in a lot of Eastern cultures, you tend to see more of a, a mindset of, of sort of an organism that is composed by like a country as an organism that is composed of all of these different little organs. And, 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 uh, and ultimately, everything you do is for the wider organism, right? It's sort of free will is not as important as sort of the wider thing uh that we're trying to achieve and you look in in the response to coronavirus you know and and you know china is a very specific example it's certainly not representative of the entire eastern hemisphere but but sort of the you know people were sort of more amenable to 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 sacrificing their free will to 
protect the organism that they belong to. Whereas we're seeing in the West, it's harder for us to, because of the stories we tell around, you know, individual freedoms and um, and so on and so forth. So those are a few examples that come to mind. No, I think those are great examples. And, you know, I don't think, I think everyone is, a cultural expert to the extent that they can be based on their personal experience, which is all very subjective. Again, I don't feel like there is a, and I'm sorry to the anthropologist, but I don't think you can be an expert. <laughs> I don't think you can ever be an expert on every part of a culture. And especially because culture is a living thing and it changes. Like think about what um, I think China's a great example. Think about what China's culture was like in the 50s compared to what it's like today, right? So because it's not a static, stagnant thing, I don't think that there's always more you can learn about, about cultures. Um, one other thing that I did want to ask you, or one other really important point from the metaphor you gave earlier from the Google Docs, and one thing that I'm definitely very sensitive to um, coming from and a family with with Arab heritage is the point you made around who gets to edit the book, and you know that question of who not not just what are people putting in their own stories, but how do what does it feel like when other people who are not a part of the culture themselves are for whatever reason, to your point, powerful enough that they get to make edits to your own story and the way that you're perceived. And I want to tie that to, you know, you have a lot of great cultural experiences that we could draw that to. I am particularly interested to know how that resonates with you thinking about um, Brazil and sort of perceptions of Brazil over time, but maybe in particular right now, but just in general, like what does it feel like when people who are not from the culture propagate or support a narrative that didn't originate from from the society itself? Mm, mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a really relevant uh, question. And, and I'll start with a tangent because, you know, I love tangents uh, before I dig into the question. And and it's a tangent about my my Brazilianness, which is an interesting uh, thing because I think a lot of people usually associate their national identity and their cultural identity to the, their, their where they were born, right? Their sort of birthplace. If not that, uh, it's usually where their parents were born and sort of what their identity is. It sort of transcribes to you. And if not that, uh, then it's and this is my case. It's it's just the places where you have the most exposure to throughout your life. Um, it's, it's sort of, I have a very much so like a nature, uh, sorry, a nurture um, uh, preference when thinking about where we are from. It's, it's, it's not really where we're born or sort of where our parents are born. It's, it's how, which cultures we interact with. So I've never actually, so it's funny because I've never actually lived in Brazil, right? So I've, I'm Brazilian. I wasn't born in Brazil. I've never lived in Brazil, but I'm Brazilian. And that, that throws a lot of people off. Um, but it is, in fact, the culture that my identity is most attached to. 
for a reason, the family primarily, um, and just exposure. I go there every year. I've never lived there, but every single year of my life, we, we go there, we visit the extended family. I think I, I am Brazilian. And so when, you know, thinking about the current situation in Brazil, it is very close to, to my heart. And I do have a sense that Brazil in recent years has been sort of using the an analogy of the Google Drive. We've sort of had maybe some players from the north, some like users in, in the northern hemisphere, gaining editing privileges to the, 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 the cultural storybook of Brazil in ways uh, that sort of encourage Brazilians to want to be like their uh, their counterparts in the north. So Brazil, in, 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 very, uh, in a simpler way, Brazil tends to sort of aspire to become the United States in many ways. Uh, there's been, uh, you know, what we're seeing politically, it's like it's echoing really a lot of what we're seeing in the United States, except our democracy is much younger and more tenuous and the checks and balances are not quite as developed as they are in the United States. Um, so, so yes, I think there is, uh, often we see in history, these influences uh, where, where someone from a different culture comes in and sort of says, hey, your culture has some weird things, this, and we have a really good book that we use. Uh, I think you're going to love some of these ideas. And the thing there is, is, is that yeah we need to like be curious about it. there's no right or wrong ultimately right so we need, but it's how that how that happens and i think we need to be careful about distancing ourselves from our local reality when we think about what our culture book what stories we should tell because you know brazil has this massive biodiversity geographically super blessed is super rich just a human diversity in our population um, it has such unique characteristics that to sort of try to emulate another story from a different context, a context in the U.S. that is not perfect, right? The history of the U.S. is, is, is both very rich and also very problematic in so many ways. So is Brazil's, right? So, yes, we need to sort of be curious about the other books, uh, uh, but we need to contextualize the ideas we get from those other books to our local reality and not just try to copy paste, right? I guess is what I would say. But one thing that that, you know, just to really go as right into the thick of the complicated parts of, of culture, your family is Brazilian, you know, you identify as Brazilian, you're very familiar with Brazilian culture, and you also lived for a time in Portugal, which for those of you who are less familiar with um, world history, Portugal was the colonial uh ruler that uh, imposed themselves, I'm trying to use my words very carefully, on uh, what we now, the area that we now think of as Brazil. And you were in, I only asked this specifically because I know you were in Portugal when you were and and towards the older end of your years. So I feel like there's a chance that you would have been more conscientious of this. Do you feel like living in Portugal as a Brazilian or coming from a Brazilian background, how did that impact the way that you perceive both cultures, sort of Brazilian and, and Portuguese? In a lot of cases, you know, Lebanon, there's plenty of examples of us sort of idealizing 
French culture, even though they were our colonizers. And I know there's some similarities um, with Brazil, but I've never lived in France. And so I'm curious to know what, if any, impact that had on you. Did I, it's, it's funny because I've lived in Portugal, but I haven't lived in, in Brazil, but I am more Brazilian than I am. The colonization uh, piece of the culture is very interesting. So yeah, Por- Portugal had, had this tiny country, a Euro- tiny European country, developed this capability to geographically uh, expand its influence and sort of grow its book. Um, through navigation and uh, and of course we all know colonization is riddled with problematic things but yeah portugal one of the big territories that they colonized was the territory of brazil a massive territory in south america and and i'm sure uh and it's 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 it happened in a very peaceful way uh how the the portuguese um how Brazil was born, right? How Brazil gained its independence. It was, it was, uh, you know, all the, there was war going on in Europe, and then a, a Brazilian prince decided to to escape from. Uh, sorry, a Portuguese prince decided to escape from the incoming conflict, and uh, and went to Brazil for safety, and then just sort of decided to stay there, and then they decided to. To, to give Brazil its independence, and it sort of became its own territory. There was really no war uh, of independence. So it was a, it was it's it's a it's an interesting uh, example of a, a, a peaceful independence. So we, when we think about the two cultures, um, there is a bit of a tension between uh, the Portuguese and Brazilians around language, for sure. I think. The Portuguese from Portugal is 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 different from the Portuguese from Brazil. The Portuguese from Brazil is 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 more maybe musical. It, it has this more sort of tropical flavor. Uh, there's more emphasis on the vowels, uh, whereas the Portuguese from Portugal it, it sort of de-emphasizes the vowels in speech, and so phonetically they sound very different. The words are pretty much the same, except for slang terms and and more colloquialisms and that kind of thing uh, but there's a tension between uh, the language of how, what Brazilians are doing to the Portuguese language a lot of Portuguese um, sort of gra- grammatics I'm not sure if that's the the right word for the professional who studies uh, grammar yeah uh, they get very frazzled by um, by by how different the the Portuguese in Brazil is, and when publications happen, and and uh, and we have a friend cat of ours, Paulo Souza, who sort of you—it's evident how frazzled he can get when things are just published in the Portuguese from Brazil, um, and and doesn't contact. Even though it's like the meaning is there, it's understandable to both uh, peoples. You know, they want it to be like uh, in the language, the specific language that they use in Portugal for it to be more understandable, which, you know, there's, there's, there's a fairness to that. Um, um, but also there's sort of this tension between, and so recently Brazil and Portugal tried to do this, this agreement where they tried to update their languages and the grammar and sort of the, the standards of languages and tried to unify some words and try to sort of 
reduce the variation between the languages and that was such a tricky process and 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 uh we were able to sort of make some changes uh, that some words were sort of gotten rid of and we said you know we're only going to use this word um but i know the portuguese sort of feel a little bit threatened by what brazil does with the language and brazilians on the other hand don't really care as much in my perception uh about and brazil is larger right there's sort of proportional things that come into play but i think a big part of culture is language right so uh, there is a attention there i also know that um that you know portuguese culture is um is very european whereas uh it has a lot of of course naturally a lot of uh european influence whereas brazilian culture is of course very uh south american and has and it's it, the tropical uh the fact that brazil has a lot of exposure to, to sort of tropical weather and to a much larger territory and interacts with these neighbors that are very different to the neighbors in 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 portugal yeah there is um some similarities there's a lot of similarities there's nuance uh but a lot of differences and and then the question becomes is is sort of what brazil is doing to the portuguese culture better or worse or 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 neither right it's it's both it's always a little bit of both right um it's not that brazil brazilians are improving the portuguese language by making it sound more musical or by making it sound more uh understandable because you are emphasizing the vowels you could argue that uh, portuguese from brazil is more understandable to sort of the western ear uh but depends on where you come from because if you come from russia perhaps the portuguese from portugal is more understandable because there is sort of phonetically some affinity there uh so yeah so i mean uh it was interesting to 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 live in portugal for the two years that i lived there i was old enough to sort of be able to experience and remember and 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 I actually learned to love the portuguese from portugal I love I have so much fun uh speaking it and and when I speak to my friends in portugal it's 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 fun to sort of uh use the 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 unique slang that they use and 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 uh and 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 then again I've never actually uh lived in 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 brazil so I think the point around language is so important and you and I know this from our work we're the only team right now at our organization that does work in the local language so in spanish and portuguese in our case um in the countries that we work in and the difference between how people express themselves and how you can build relationships with people just by speaking the same language in a very literal sense is so uh is so different it's like an exponential increase in how much more effective you can be and how much more people will learn and absorb what you're doing and what you're teaching them in how much deeper the relationships can go but i think even within the um even if you're speaking the same language literally you know those distinctions of slang and some of those cultural norms in in arabic different dialects are essentially different languages it's it's honestly kind of useless if you know how to speak arabic from one country and you don't want to only work and talk and talk to people from that country 
I have to ask just because we're on the topic of Brazil and culture and Brazil and Portugal and language, and it's just uh, one of my favorite stories. If you wouldn't mind sharing with our uh, massive audience <laughs> some of the language and perhaps cultural uh, faux pas that you have, I would say, been witness to, although not thankfully been victim of in, in our work in Portugal. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, we have a a colleague, Kat and I, uh, who who is 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 very much so an extrovert and, and is often uh, in the fray. And in in this case, uh, he uh, was in an event. We were we were both in an event. Uh, he was on on stage, um, and this was an event with with uh, upwards to nineteen hospital organizations so you had people from 19 hospitals in portugal public hospitals attending this event and then we had a team uh, uh, of, of of people from the uk uh and then myself and 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 paulo and then and uh and then uh, uh a few others but paul uh, uh, so paulo is is uh is is this colleague that was on stage um it, it explaining, uh, making a point to a crowd of how it's important to engage, uh, engage patients, uh, engage with families, engagement, engage with the doctors, engage with the nurses, you know, engagement, engagement, engagement. And, and I was there like, yeah, no, that's right on. You know, this is, that's, that's, that's what's up. Uh, and then, and then uh, we started to notice that in the audience, people were sort of, had these like funny faces. It was hard to read. Maybe some people were sort of giggling. Um, and then, and then after, you know, Paulo finishes making this very important point, uh, his, our Portuguese colleague comes up to him and, and, uh, and explains, he's like, Paulo, you can't, you can't do that. And, 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 and both, both of these guys are called Paulo, right? So, uh, there's actually, classic. Classic. <laughs> Taking advantage of this opportunity to explain the word chara, which is in Spanish, I think, tocayo, but chara in Portuguese is basically what you call someone who shares the same name. So, so these two charas were, were sort of debriefing, and, and Paulo from Portugal was telling Paulo from Brazil, hey, you can't do this. And Paulo from Brazil was like, why? You know, it's so important. And then he explains that engaja, so in, uh, in, engage, to engage in Portuguese from Brazil is engaja, is how you say that word. In Portugal, that word means to procure uh, a prostitute, right, or to to hire a prostitute. Uh, so Paulo from Brazil was basically telling this crowd of, of healthcare professionals, it's so important to uh, procure a prostitute with your patients, to procure a prostitute with your families, <laughs> and and a faux pas, complete faux pas, you know. And uh, and the same language, uh, a word, a word. It turns out that you would say. Involver os pacientes. It's like to involve the patients is how they, they say that in Portugal, and, and and so yeah, even words are used in both languages, but can have very very different uh, meanings. Is is you often see this in 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 the Portuguese from the different countries that speak it. That's only I would say like tangentially related to the podcast theme today. I just think that's such a great story. It's such a perfect. It's such a perfect representation of being lost in translation on so many levels. Because Paulo Borem, who is the doctor who is from Brazil in that story, 
he knows Brazilian culture really well. He knows a U.S. culture very well. He, at that point, had been working in Portugal for a, a substantial amount of time. He had worked in other Portuguese-speaking countries. Um, and so you just think about Paulo, in theory, is like the most multicultural person there. And, you know, even he can get tripped up by something that you wouldn't necessarily, you know, how do you know to look up that stuff in advance? And it's just like such a great story. And it's it's a great example of some of the challenges or some of the things that you have to keep in mind when you do work across cultures. We both know that there are very different approaches to work and priorities within work across different cultures. Mm, yeah. And I, and I think going back to sort of the sort of uh, colonizer and the colonized and author or of, of the Portugal book goes to Brazil and tries to kind of replicate that book, but it's, it's, it doesn't work that way, right? You need to adapt. You need to contextualize. It became sort of a different set of stories that have roots in this other book, this other, this other narrative. But they become it becomes its own uh, narrative and its own set of stories, and and uh, that's you know almost inevitable. I think something we have to be very careful with in any situation is sort of trying to bring something that a set of stories that we know are great in our experience in our setting in our context trying to bring those same exact stories to another context and making them work is is arguably either impossible or 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 just uh destructive right it's it's you're 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 not building upon something you're just sort of going and trying to remove something and establish a new story and that's we know is incredibly problematic and that's a lot of the problems with sort of colonization in in, in general uh, and and the, the point about language is, I think there's no better way to em, em, empathize with another culture than to be able to speak their language. I mean, that's the, it's not a shortcut because it's so hard to learn a new language, but that is the shortcut to actually gain, become multicultural is to learn the languages that other cultures speak. Because what is culture if not language-based, right? It's We use language to create the stories that then become our cultures, right? So um it is possible i think to to gain affinity with a culture without speaking their language i do think so it's just so much harder it's so much harder well i think you're definitely more limited i mean i feel that in what what that bond feels like i feel that way because i don't speak arabic and that wasn't a choice that i made that was you know my mom's family made the choice to pendulum swing to hardcore assimilation because that's, you know, the pattern that a lot of immigrant families take. But yeah, it's definitely, it's, I feel that gap between how much, I feel how much closer I could feel to that culture and to that part of my, my heritage, even though arguably it's the one that in general, I I feel a lot closer to. So I know we're, we're almost at time. Um, so what do you think is the biggest misconception about being multicultural or multiculturalism? And what do you think is the biggest or the most underappreciated advantage? I think you, you, you touched on I think one of the mis- misconceptions around uh, about multiculturalism, which, uh, which is basically, you know, think of the idea of a, the idea of a multicultural country is is i think riddled with with misconception and then you think about if you look up the united sort of united states culture on google you're going to get a definition that's something along the lines of 
I think the word multicultural is in there, is, is in some definitions of the United States, and that is true given the history, given the, the sort of Im- immigrant history of the country. And then you bring into the phrase sort of the, the melting pot analogy uh, uh, or, or sort of concept. Really, every country is multicultural in today's day and age. If you have like people from different cultures living in that country, more than two, uh, then you're a, mo- you're a multicultural country. Every, the question is how much that country chooses to create policies to create a melting pot that's sort of where the cult- multicultural mix blends and eventually boils over time into sort of a monoculture with sort of one flavor uh, versus a melting pot that kind of simmers forever and where each culture is sort of the policies sort of allow and, and the, and the, and the uh, I guess the culture of the country itself, the sort of dominant culture encourages people to preserve those flavors from their uh, culture. So I think the misconception is, is sort of, oh, this is a multicultural country. This isn't. I think every country nowadays, because of, of in the past, sure, when you know it wasn't as easy to travel, but even then, you know, you had a lot of movement even in like the 1700s or 1800s. So I think uh, there's no such thing as a country that is not multicultural. It's it's what people do with that diversity and what policies they put in place to either try to merge and and remove difference and remove get rid of sort of variation versus embrace that variation and sort of try to make the most of it and i think the u.s is a very interesting case study in how it's sort of shifted and how it perceives what to do with their multicultural uh, composition but what would you say is one of the most underrated or underappreciated aspects of multiculturalism i think one of the most underappreciated aspects about multiculturalism and i and i consider myself to be multicultural is how it gives you how it gives you it kind of removes you from a local level of loyalty but it gives you sort of a, an appreciation for the global and it, it it draws you towards thinking about things in a very macro way or in a in a very global way, and and that allows you to to have empathy with more ease. I think if you're not too loyal to one subset of the sort of global population, and you sort of see that there is value in all of the subsets, and and um, and none of them are perfect, um, it allows you to be more empathetic. I think. With, with it's easier to be there's less sort of bias in your head to sort of think about how someone who's completely different from you who lives in a completely different place is still very similar uh to you and, and ultimately more similar than than different uh, um i don't think i don't think that being multicultural is the only way to to, to remove or, or decrease or mitigate that barrier to, to be empathetic at a global scale, but it's it certainly has been a very helpful way, and and uh, for me personally, and I think uh, for a lot of people, uh, as I think we know, the more exposure they get to sort of the diversity of the world, the more tolerant they are of of, of other people and their differences. So I think that's an underappreciated. Uh, maybe it is appreciated. Maybe it's not underappreciated. Maybe maybe people do appreciate it, but it's something I personally appreciate. Thank you so much for all of your thoughtful contributions and considerations, which I know some of which did not come 
off the cuff tonight. And I mean that in the best way, because I know that, you know, you were trying to be the best podcast guest you could be. And I know you're a fellow podcast aficionado. Danielle, um, in case some of the thoughts and content that you brought up tonight were of interest to people, where would you like to be found if people want to continue the conversation with you? Sure. Yeah. Oh, I love this question. Wow. It's, it's, inter- it's crazy being on the other side of this question. Oh my goodness. Ooh. You know, I am on all of the social media pretty much. Uh, I have a presence on, on all of them. My, my Twitter is at uh, Dan, D-A-N Perez, which is P-E-R-E-S 91. Uh, and that's my Twitter handle. You can find me there. I'm not super active, uh, but it is, it is a medium that I, that I do spend some time on and I'm trying to, to share thoughts and interact with it a little bit more, but really the best place to find me considering that your audience is is an intimate there's an intimate following to this podcast uh it really would probably be my email i am actually working on uh, a wordpress website which wow breaking news guys this is (laughs) hot exclusive content i am actually i was i was uh talking to a friend who does a lot of website design and uh and and he suggested that I just create a, 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 you know, WordPress is super intuitive, super easy to use. And I, so I, I have created the website, but it, I haven't put anything on it. So it's not yet a great place. Um, What's that uh, saying? And I drive to <laughs> see the wall and uh, throw your hat over exactly. it and then go get it. No time like the present, my friend. And I think the website is, I uh, can't, if you're going to put this in sort of the notes, I actually I think it's like danperez91.wordpress.com. Uh, usually you look up danperez91, you'll find me on most uh, platforms. Uh, and my email is dan.perez91 at gmail.com. And that's probably the best place to, to actually uh, uh, find me. And, and uh, if anyone's curious about uh, anything we've, we've discussed tonight, I'm so excited that you have a WordPress. I am 100% going to put it in the notes to the show, and I hope that will force you to start putting some content on it. I think you would be the most unbelievable blogger, and I would love to have you just have a space to share your musings. Well, you already answered my second question, which was going to be, what do you want to plug, Uh, which I have well, I'm executively deciding that you want to plug your WordPress website that <laughs> is in the process of being developed. Is there anything else that you would like to highlight? Yeah, sure. Actually, so this is uh, early days, but uh, 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 three of us, uh, myself and two friends who, who currently live in Sao Paulo, uh, Brazil, were putting together and, uh, and we're very close to having a prototype, uh, a, a mask sort of a face mask, jumping on the mask train. We're working on a, an initiative to produce uh, masks that are more comfortable and uh, reusable and that people can wear for around eight hours without feeling uncomfortable and that has enough protection, not medical grade, but just enough protection uh, as most masks that are out there. Um, and the, the mask is called Flow 20. Uh, FLO two zero, and it's only we're you know selling it uh, in in Brazil, and likely by the end of the month of May, it uh, it will be 
available if all goes according uh, to plan. And uh, uh, the, the profits from the initiative would, would go to a social organization that works with, with slums, favelas in Brazil. That's, wow, you're just really like throwing a lot of bombs out here. Guys, I talk to Danielle and work with Danielle every day, every day and I did not know about either one of these things. That's incredibly exciting. I would like to be on the waiting list when your distribution expands. Thank you for spending much of your Friday afternoon, evening with me, even before the pod. Thanks so much, Kat, for having me. It's been such a such a, a pleasure and, and it's been a joy for me to, to just participate in a in a, in a podcast, I really just loved sharing uh, my thoughts about this. And it certainly is a topic that we can go in many, many, many directions. But I, I had fun. I had fun with it. And, and thanks for inviting me to participate in your, in your podcast. Well, take care, everyone. Bye.